So last week we spoke about the incarnation. We spoke of Jesus' coming in the flesh, the second person of the Blessed Trinity becoming man. And we spoke of his, the Annunciation, the Nativity, and we spoke a bit about, most about his public life. Today I want to continue on talking about his public life and lead us more particularly into the Paschal mystery, that Easter mystery, the passion, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, and um, from there we will progress on to, to Mary next week. So when we speak of Jesus, when we speak of the coming of the Christ, the Christos, the Messiah, the Mashiach, the one who was to come into the world to redeem all mankind, we speak of him in the framework of the Paschal Mystery. The Paschal Mystery when, when I say Paschal Mystery, remember I'm saying the passion, death, and resurrection. It's all three things. When I speak of that, I'm speaking of the central core of our faith, the central core of the good news, of the gospel, the central core of the life of the church. And so what is the basis, if you will, the structure of the Paschal Mystery? It is this idea, this is a, a, big, a big word, kenosis. Okay, it's a Greek word, which basically means self emptying, self-abandonment. So the life of Jesus Christ, the, the whole purpose of the coming of Christ, is this life of kenosis, this life of abandoning of self, is total self-gift. So I, the kind of the, the, an aspect of theology that I find very interesting, that to me is something that I, is very involved in my prayer, is something called donum theology or gift theology, this idea of everything is gifts. Creation is gifts. Uh, our Holy Father talks about that in Laudato Si a lot, that everything, relationship is gift, that all, all of theology, all of the, everything from God is gift. Okay? If we look at it that way, then we can even see friendship. The friendship with God is a gift. The friendship I have with others is a gift. My own life, all these things. Well, the gift of Jesus Christ, the kenosis, the abandonment, the total gift of himself to the Father as, as God and as man is the reason why he came. So at the basis and the entire structure of the life of our Lord is that he came to redeem us, to transform the fallen state of man. And so how does he do that? This entire project of salvation is based upon the fact that Adam said no. Adam did not make his life a gift. As a matter of fact, he took the gift unto it for himself. You think about what was the relation, the original relationship in the garden that, Ad, that Adam and Eve, they poured themselves out for one another. But before that, there was a pouring out between them and God. God pouring himself out, them returning that gift. That was the perfect relationship. That's what we're made for. But in the original sin, what they did is they rejected, they took the gift back. And so what was it that would redeem them? Someone had to make a gift. Someone had to reignite the passionate love affair between God and man. And so it begins with the yes of Mary. And we could say that Mary is a co-redemptrix. Okay, in Latin, 
O-R at the end of something is mas masculine and I-X is woman, right? So women can't be directors. They're directrixes, right? Okay, so, so you ever wonder what that is? So it's, that's, that's, that's where it comes from. So Mary is not a mediator. She's a mediatrix of graces, but she's also a co-redemptrix that she co-redeems with Jesus because she, the new Eve, makes the yes that will make his yes possible, that his gift of self possible. That kenosis, that self-emptying, that self-abandonment is what Mary does, but, of course, what Jesus does par excellence. And, of course, his yes capacitates or makes Mary capable of saying her yes. It's just time is reversed because God can do that. Okay? So, when we look at that life of Jesus, Jesus... We look at his life, he seems to be opposed. There's a, he's a rat, he's really radical. Okay, now, he's not radical in the Che Guevara radical, okay? He's not, when we talk about Jesus, I'm going to speak of him as a revolutionary, that he is revolutionary, is, I do not mean it like he, like 1960s radical, okay? What I'm talking about is that he makes that radical break, if you will, from sin, that he is drawing, by taking sin upon himself, by, as St. Paul says, becoming sin, what he does is that in that, so what is sin? Sin is an em emptiness. Sin is a lack. Okay, evil is not a, a positive. It's not like good and evil. Okay? Evil is not a positive reality. Evil is a negation. Okay? So if I, this room is well lit, if I were to go over there and turn off the lights, I wouldn't, be creating darkness, I would simply be taking away light, okay? So evil is a, a lack or a negation, all right? If that's the case, then what does Jesus Christ do? He comes to completely empty himself. He, in the self-emptying, takes on the emptiness. He takes on the negation. He takes on the lack, and he allows it to overcome him. And in that moment of being overcome and complete, the darkness and death envelops him, he then defeats it because only God can do that. Okay? He takes on our greatest fears. All right? In doing that, he's a revolutionary. What is he doing? He is making a radical break from the world of sin for man, and he is now inviting us into this new transformed reality which is the life of grace, which is the divine sonship that he shares with us. So Jesus is opposed in the life of Israel. He's opposed by the religious authorities of Israel because of a variety of different reasons. He seems to break the Sabbath, right? The Sabbath, he's the whole reason for the Sabbath. So everywhere he is, it's always Sabbath. It always is the holy time because he is there. And so that's one of the things that they, they, can't, they can't stand him for. He expels demons. He forgives sins. He's healing. He's working on the Sabbath. He's doing all of these novel interpretations of the law. He has familiarity with sinners. He's doing what a priest, prophet, and king does. He's doing what only God can do. See, the horrid uh, uh, scandal of Jesus to the religious leaders is that He's acting as only God can act. He's not acting as a great teacher. Anyone who says that Jesus Christ was a great teacher is actually wrong. Yes, he was a 
great, he, he gave the truth. But when they say he was a great teacher of, of the people, the people were rebelling against him. Is that he was, he was, he was there doing what a teacher simply takes. I'm right now, I'm taking the scripture, I'm teaching it to you. I'm not creating anything new. I'm not doing anything new here. I'm simply relating it to you. You know, they always, it's the old thing, whoever, if, what, those that can't do, teach. Okay, well, well, it's, I hate that, right? But, but at the same time, this is true. I can't do anything new. I can only teach it to you. He's doing something completely new. He is recreating. He is doing what God does. That's why he expels demons. He is ushering out the age of evil. He's ushering out the influence of evil. He forgives sins. He restores people to life, to spiritual health, to physical health, to emotional health. Imagine that. There's something that's not spoken about in Scripture very often. One of the great... uh, one of the great scourges of our current day is, is a lack of emotional maturity. If you will, we could say affective wounds are probably the deepest thing in our society that run through us. Whether it's from broken families, it's from broken minds and bodies, it's from used hearts, it's from all these different things. We see it today in our in our universities, you know, the kind of damaged, narcissistic, self-absorbed students. We see them complaining about being offended over someone dropping something, anything. Everyone's offended. Everybody's a victim. That victimhood, that the universal victimhood that everybody is under right now comes from broken emotions. Okay? That Jesus Christ in the gospel, he raises people from the dead. It's interesting, if you ever want to read the gospels in this light, you know, I think you'll find a great fruit from it. Is he, he not only raises people from physical death or from spiritual death of sin, he heals emotions. He heals the affectively wounded. Watch the way he interacts with people. He's doing what only God can do. I bet you all of us here have experienced that when we're counseling somebody, helping somebody, talking to a friend, and they come to us with a great problem. It's an emotional problem. And we just want to we just want to like enter into that pain. We want to enter someone that when you really love somebody, you want to do this. This is actually a great litmus test of if we really love somebody. Uh, that sting song is going to be in my head all night now. It's like, if you love somebody, uh, set them free. That's what he does. He sets them free from him themselves. Jesus Christ enters into the emotional pain. He, he takes it on and he transforms them. And it's interesting to see, like, the woman who was caught in adultery, for instance, she is an emotional wreck. Not only has she been accused of all these things, and not only she's sinned, but she's also a wreck. I mean, it's clearly someone who's been used and who has allowed herself to be used. And she has no self-dignity, no self-respect. And how does Jesus encounter her? He not only forgives her of her sins... And challenges her to go off and to sin no more. But he heals her heart. Okay, this is why the Pharisees couldn't stand him. He's doing what only God can do. But he's a scandal to them because he clearly is a man. So they can't understand this reality of the incarnation. It's a scandal to the Jews. And it's it's craziness to the Greeks. Because... 
when you look at him, it's he is God is totally other. God is God is unattainable. How can you be God? It does not compute in their head. It still doesn't compute. Our Muslim friends don't. It doesn't. It's a scandal to them as well. It's the same mentality that God. How could God be a man? How could a man act as God? There's no way. That's why they mock him. So this is the kind of the revolution, if you will. This is the scandal of the cross. Um, he also, he does it through his words. The way he interprets the law is he brings them back to the truth of the law that has God and man in the center. And it's not for the sake of the law, but the law is for the sake of leading God and man closer. He's accused of blasphemy because he calls me speaks as God. I mean, there's, one, there's many points where he will refer... Is that he says, I am. He actually uses the tetragrammaton. He uses the unspoken word of God. He says that I am. This is blasphemy to them. They're ripping their garments. I always thought that would be a really great response, by the way. When someone really, just like if someone's like, Jesus Christ or something, you just go, ah, you just rip your garment. We should have the, <laughs> like the, oh, carry an extra garment with you. You can just like tear it asunder. What a great way of, what a great way of being angry, you know, just like, for, it's like the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> it's just right. I, I keep seamstresses, especially in 495 traffic, but, but, but he seems to be, so he, it seems that he's cre- committing false prophecy in all these things. So what does it seem to them that there's three areas that it seems as though Jesus is against, okay? It seems that he's against the law. Which is, which is the, the gift of God that keeps them in right relationship with him. The temple, okay, which is the place of right worship of the people of Israel. It's also the national center, if you will. Now remember, and this is something that's very difficult for us, maybe in a little while, maybe a little bit, we can think of it as like nationalism. We talk about the homeland. We talk about, you know, the American vibrato of patriotism, which is great. We can kind of see it, but, but for us, it's, it's still different. For the people of Israel, they were a tribe. Okay, so you have to think in tribal terms. that Everything is just de- defined by the tribe. And so the temple was the center of the tribe's identity. That even all the Psalms speak of going, to, not all of them, but many of the Psalms speak of going to the temple as this place of identity. Jesus keeps returning there, as a matter of fact. So, the law, the temple, and this faith in one God. Because Jesus is speaking, and he's, he said, whoever sees me sees the Father. The Father and I are one. Well, wait a minute. This seems as though you're saying that there's more than one God. So, to them, they, it's, you, could, you could see how they get their haunches up. So, let me talk about those three things. Jesus and the law. The entire program of Jesus fulfills the law. Jesus keeps the law perfectly in, in every way. He says, I have not come to take away the law. I've come to fulfill it. Okay, the whole letter, the whole spirit of the law, and that's the thing, the Pharisees, they, they weren't following the spirit of the law. They might have followed the letter, but the, it became about the law, not about what was behind the law. In effect, you know, it kind of reminds me of... Um, 
Those of you that are familiar with Les Miserables, you know, when you look at Javert, Javert keeps the letter of the law, but he has no sense of the human person, of their dignity, of their worth, of, their, of, of the concept and idea of mercy. If you're not familiar with that story, please, by all means, become familiar with Les Mis. <laughs> uh, it's one of the greatest novels ever written. And uh, the musical is not quite 100% accurate to the novel, but close enough. Uh, but if you, if you look at that, you just, they, they, they had no sense of the spirit, and Jesus is keeping it in its simplicity and in its beauty. Jesus fulfills the law in his very person. Remember, he's the divine legislator. He's the word made flesh. The word is the law. So he's not just a follower of the law. He is the law. The whole point of the law is him. And so he gives the proper interpretation. You've heard it said, he says this. You have heard it say, and he says a part of the law, and he says, but I say to you, Ultimately, he interprets the law in this thoroughly divine way. Um, and, and what do they say about him? They always, every time Jesus speaks, he speaks as one with authority. Remember, they're always saying that. It's not authority based on, on not I'm trying to think of a good example. How many of you are familiar with Hamlet? How many of you have seen Hamlet? You're familiar with it? Okay. Most of you know the to be or not to be soliloquy. Hopefully you have seen it acted before. When you watch a young, I know it's, I can't think of an even better one, but when you watch a young actor perform the to be or not to be speech, it really is the question, isn't it? You know, it's, is it, do, to, to exist or not to exist? When you see somebody who has never wrestled with the idea of existence or someone who has never entered into a period where despair might actually be something that they've experienced and they get up and then they try to do the to be or not to be, they're not speaking with conviction. You just know it. It's like listening to Charlotte Church sing. Remember that singer? That young, obnoxious singer? Man, a lot of people liked her. She sang about love when she was 13 years old. What do you know about love? You know the right notes. You can sing them, but you don't know what it means to love. You don't know what it means to suffer. You don't know what it means to, like, to have to sit there and like, die for somebody in some way. And so he lacked conviction. Okay, but when someone who has been on the verge, somebody who has been in a very dark place and suffers, gets up there and they look at that audience in that, that kind of, that the depth of the despair that, it, that Hamlet is wrestling with, and they say, to be or not to be. They're speaking with an authority. That you're having, you're having an encounter with the truth of that experience, of that emotion, of that, deeper than an emotion, of that existential crisis. Okay, Jesus Christ is the experience. He is the law. He is the word made flesh. He is the one to whom all is directed. The one, to whom we, the one for whom we are made. So when he speaks, the authority is divine. They are, the words of encounter with Jesus are, he speaks with authority. They were trembling. They were afraid. They were in awe. 
When Jesus speaks in the fullness of his authority at the transfiguration, the apostle Peter, James, and John cannot help but face plant in the ground because of the experience of divinity. I think this is very important for us to to understand for our own prayer. When we're praying with the scriptures, to really read that that way is... We speak, of, we, we speak of Jesus as man to relate to him. But we also cannot forget the divinity and the mystery and the majesty of Jesus. There is something that is awful about him. And I, and I, I mean that in the classical term, full of awe. Like when they are with him, it is being in the presence of the burning bush. You encounter it in a very deep way. They might not see it because he's, his majesty is veiled, if you will, except at the transfiguration and, of course, afterwards in the resurrection. But he is truly divine. So this is Jesus' encounter with the law. Jesus in the temple. Once again, I was talking about that national center. Jesus, he loves the temple. I really love, he loves that center of, that, of the of the, the reality of the people of Israel, because this is the presence of God is there. So he goes at the presentation in the temple, the finding in the temple. He went to pay his tax in the temple. He went to, to <laughs> talk about robbing Peter to pay Paul, right? Just like, here's the money, but it's for us. It's for me. But, uh, but, the, um, but he celebrated Passover there. He taught there. He would always go to the temple to teach. God was taking his place his rightful place truly in, within the people of Israel, in the very center of their hearts. When he went to go teach there, God was teaching there. It was a privileged place of encounter with God, the temple was. It was his dwelling. It was, his pla- it was the place of prayer, the place of encounter. And so what happens is that the temple people... Pe- Jesus speaks about the destruction of the temple. If you destroy this temple, surely I tell you, in three days I will raise it up. Because now, where Jesus is, there is the place of right worship of God. Okay, so once he dies and rises, the temple no longer is necessary. That's why the temple, when it's destroyed in 70 AD, will never be, really, it will never be rebuilt. It'll still, to this day, even if, they, even if they decided to rebuild it, they couldn't. I have to tell you why. It's, uh, it's interesting. It, you can't violate the Holy of Holies. No one's allowed to violate the Holy of Holies. The problem is no one knows where the Holy of Holies is in the Temple Mound. Because of that, they could never excavate into the Temple Mound to, to dig and raise the Temple again because they don't know where the Holy of Holies is. And so, why? Jesus is the Holy of Holies. Wherever he is, there is God. And so now his, in his body, he's God's definitive dwelling place among men. Now worship is everywhere. That's why in every tabernacle, in all over the world, everywhere there is a tabernacle, everywhere the Eucharist is, there is the temple. There is Jesus. And finally, Jesus and the, I finally said, the faith in one God. If you think of how he confronts Israel's faith in the one God and as a savior, it's, it says that this Jesus is the greatest stumbling block for the Jews. is a scandal. Why? Because of the forgiveness of sins and yet his familiarity with sinners. It seems to be blasphemy. How can you, 
How can you enter into communion with those that are separated from God? Because God, why did he come? I told you, kenosis, to enter into the self-abandonment, to enter into sin. He has to enter into sin in order to redeem sin. This is what Pope Francis talks about when he says, we must go out to the fringes, we must go out to the peripheries. He's not just speaking, about, I mean, he's not a materialist, so he's not just speaking about those who are materially poor or things. It's, that, would be, that would be, well, that would be very short-sighted. It was, it, he is speaking of those who are on the fringes, existential fringes as well. Those who are in sin. We should not be afraid to go out to people who are in sin, realizing we're sinners ourselves. But if we have Jesus Christ, not, there is no dark, there is no darkness so dark that God's love is not brighter. So if we are truly believe in this truth of Jesus Christ, then we can go, we can go out and we can walk amongst the, the prostitutes and the murderers and the sinners and, and all the different people as Jesus did. We can go and be with everyone because we have nothing to be afraid of because we have him. So Jesus' claim of divinity gives him divine authority. He's, he's greater than the temple. He says, the Father and I are one. He says, I am. He speaks in the way of God because he is showing that he is God. That this faith in one God is not eradicated because of him, it's fulfilled because of him. Is that we're called to believe in him through his works, but mysteriously his greatest works will be his suffering and death. So let's talk about, let's talk about the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So, I, the more I meditate, I've been doing this for 43 years now, in one way or another, meditating on the death of Jesus. And every time I do, it's just not enough. It's got to, will, this will never, this, will, this is a mystery. It's unexhaustible. So let's look at Jesus as he is led to trial. Ha! <laughs> Man is funny. You know, we're funny to think that we can put God on trial. Division, there's a division amongst the Jewish authorities in this whole moment. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, the many who believed in him. There's people that want to help him. They they, they want to believe in him. They can feel, they can sense this this presence of God. And yet there's this fear of Roman destruction. If they do, there's a fear of blasphemy. Um, There's a fear of political revolt. There's all this, there's just chaos going on in society. The historical complexity of this trial is unprecedented and still says never, no trial has ever been like this. So the question has to be like, who's responsible for Jesus' death? Always people want to remember we live in a blame world. We always want to blame somebody. There's always someone who's, there's always a victim and there's always a victimizer. And so people will say, well, who's responsible for Jesus' death? Everyone. Because we, we, we don't know the personal sin of the participants of the actual trial. Only God knows that. Well, it's not the Jews in Jerusalem as a whole that are responsible for his death. Clearly, there were people that wanted Jesus to live. It was not all the pagans. For instance, Pilate's wife says, don't, 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 this man's a just man. Don't kill this man. She has that dream. 
And yet it is both the Jews and the pagans. It's the Jews and the Gentiles. It is all, they are representative of all sinners who are responsible for killing God. Think of that. What we tried to do. You know, we thought trying to build the Tower of Babel was bad, that we were trying to achieve heaven. Now man tries to kill God. And what does he do? In this kenosis, in this self-abandonment, in this act of total radical self-giving, he forgives. He forgives them all. He forgives all of us in this moment. Forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. That's a beautiful thing. We should try to say that often. When somebody is really treating us badly, forgive them. They know. He's making excuses for us. Do we make excuses for people that hurt us? Talk about an act of love. All sinners are responsible, and we're all, every one of us is an author of the suffering of Christ. Christ. And we have the gravest responsibility, us Christians, because we know. Like, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. Right? With, with knowing that I am redeemed in Jesus Christ, I have a greater responsibility to bear the burden rather than point fingers at people. I have a greater responsibility of bearing the burden of his death because he did it for me and I know better and I still sin. So Christ's redemptive death is in God's plan of salvation. If think about that. Is that was that fratricide for the father to the father? There are those in the history of the church, they're called heretics. There are some that, that say that God was fratricidal. He was trying to kill his son. Well, remember here, Jesus is God. So God is making a generous act of self in taking on all the punishment due to sin. That Jesus is handed over according to this plan of God. That God this is all in his plan. This is, it's not like all of a sudden he's like, oh, you know, I thought I was going to redeem mankind, and now they're going to crucify me. Dang it, what do I do now? This was all in the plan all the way from the garden. It's not like Adam and Eve screwed up and God was like, man, i got to think of something else. Right? No, he, he, this was all in his plan. Now, people might say, well, if God knew that all of this bad was going to happen, why could God do something like that? Well, Bishop Robert Barron gives a really great example of that, a really great explanation. That God allows evil so that a greater good may happen. So God allowed the evil, of Ad, evil to enter into the world through the free choice of Adam, Adam and Eve. Why? Because God wanted to be in a love relationship with us. And you cannot force someone to love you. They must be free. This is something that, that people need to learn in their own love relationship. Especially people need to learn probably when they have kids. That I, it's all invitation. I have to invite them. I can't force it. So God makes an invitation to man and woman. But in their freedom, they deny him. He wants that relationship, and he wants an even more profound relationship. And so he has the, the whole plan of salvation is to allow that, that sin so that a greater good may come about. But to us, sometimes it just seems like all there is is evil. And so he uses, Bishop Barron uses this, this really great example of the mystery of evil. He says, if you go, I think it's in Chicago, I'm not sure, uh, George Surratt, the famous pointillist painter. He did a painting, it was a very famous painting, all pointillist manner, 
of uh, the park. What's the there's a bunch of people hanging out next to a lake in a park. I forget the name of it. It's some French thing. All right, so <laughs> anyway, and it's great. The way Seurat would do it is he painted with a very long paintbrush so that he could see what he was doing. And then he'd get closer and he'd fill it in, and then he'd, he'd come back. If you go up to the Seurat paintings, you can look and you can see that it just looks like points of color. It's not until you start walking back that you can make out actual shapes and when you get all the way back, you can see that it is a beautiful, impressionist-type park scene with people. And it's very detailed. When you, that is the way we can understand sin. Is that you and I, when we look at reality, are only here. We're right up close to it. And so we can see a lot of evil. But it's not until we step back in time, and we will, our great stepping back will be at the end of time, when we will see... It'll be the greatest aha moment that you've ever encountered. It'll be the moment of going, whoa, that's why he allowed it. And God, in all of his mercy and understanding, knows that what is going to happen in all of this. So we, in our arrogance, have to be very careful to assume we understand God's plan. You say, wait a minute, this doesn't give a full explanation. How could God allow Hitler? How could God allow the gulags of, of, of Soviet times? How could God allow the evils and the, the, the scourgings of Napoleon and all these other things? How could God allow the, the, the you know, holocausts that would take place and, 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 and all the other things? We can't understand that mystery. Once again, it's a mystery that we can understand slightly but not fully grasp. I'll give you an example. Many people have encountered this in their life. When they see uh, their family, their family is broken apart. They've encountered infighting, hatreds, all these things. And then a member of the family dies. And everyone comes to the funeral, hopefully. And in that moment of grieving... in the moment of tragedy, in the moment of sadness, in the moment where evil now seems to have had its day, the family is bonded together again. And great, great, great good comes from that. That's a small kind of example of what will happen cosmically in the great plan of God. And so now we enter into this moment where Jesus takes on this great evil. Jesus' violent death is not a result of chance or coincidences or circumstances, but it's part of his plan. God lives, remember, God's outside of time. He lives in what we call the eternal present. It's always now. Actually, we all want that. When we talk about living presence of mind, you hear uh, my Buddhist friends talk about this a lot, of being absolutely present in the moment where nothing else exists but this moment now. Really what they hunger for is heaven. That's what heaven is. Heaven is the eternal present. And I am present in this moment. And this moment is all moments in this moment. Uh, God lives in the eternal present. So his eternal plan foresees every person's free response in his grace, including rejections. And so God permitted these acts of the crucifixion, which resulted from blind, the blindness of those who killed Jesus. He died for our sins, as the scriptures say. So even scripture foretold the divine plan of God. 
So what is, so I was talking about this a moment ago. He was made sin. I'm trying to think. In all great literature, when you have this kind of Christ figure, it seems as though death has its moment. It's interesting. Um, Fulton Sheen, Archbishop Fulton Sheen, would point this out. He says, if you read the scriptures, death has its hour. Sin has its hour. But Christ has his day. It's, it's It's a beautiful line. But in this moment of the crucifixion, it seems as though death completely envelops him. And he is lost. And in that moment, he, he, takes, he takes it on and crushes it. He takes on the emptiness. Because remember, when, when, when there's darkness, all light has to do is show up and darkness is gone. Jesus shows up in that moment. And he allows the darkness to envelop him. And then there's that light that just pierces through it and it destroys death. Man's sins punishable by death are taken on because by sending his son in the form of a slave, as St. Paul would say, he assumes humanity and God makes him to be sin who knew no sin, as St. Paul would further say. So, so that we can be saved. He takes it on. He is the, he's, the, he's the sin eater. He's the death eater. He consumes it and conquers it. Jesus didn't experience guilt uh, or punishment as if he had sinned, but he assumed solidarity with fallen manhood. He takes on fallen manhood so that we don't have to feel the guilt anymore, so that we don't have to have, the, we don't have, to have that division anymore. And how beautiful it is that when I speak to my God, I speak to one who has taken on a depravity and a sinfulness that is far greater than any I've ever committed on my own. And he continues to forgive. He draws us in. He, he doesn't just forgive us. He draws, I'm theologizing here a little bit, but he draws us into the act of forgiveness itself. So every confession, every absolution is not just an individual moment of forgiveness. It is the moment of forgiveness where he, draw, he, he takes on our sin. As a priest, I can tell you that there's a, a beautiful uh, solidarity that we have, of course, with Jesus, the high priest, when we hear confessions. I remember once, uh, it was a few years ago, I went, it, was right after, it was right after Easter, and I went to my chiropractor, uh, which I used to go, I haven't been in a long time. And I went in and I, I kind of walked in and I go, hey, how are you? He said, you've been hearing a lot of confessions, huh? I said, yeah, how'd you know? He said, you're leaning over. And I said, ah, that's funny. He goes, no, 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 I seriously, you can see it in your body. I, it's like he allows, he allows us to experience just a little, just a little, thank God, just a little bit, right? Of it, you can, you can feel it, you can... But what does he do? He takes it on so that we can walk away. We can, we don't, we don't, once we're forgiven, it's gone. He takes it on and he crushes it in love. Love crushes sin. That's why we should never be afraid to admit that we're sinners because once it's admitted, once, once the darkness is exposed to the light, it's gone. There's nothing, we don't have the word. It's like when you're a little kid and you're afraid of the dark. I'm sure all of us had that experience. 
We become afraid of the dark, and then you turn the lights on. I'm not afraid anymore. That's it. That's it. That's what he does. He turns the lights on. So, when Jesus speaks the words of Psalm 22 from the cross, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is speaking the words of solidarity with all. He's speaking as man. He's saying the words of Adam. There's the, really, those are the last words of Adam. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because it feels as though the encounter, not just a feeling, it's not just affective. The experience is one of absolute, of the absolute abandonment of God. So what does Jesus say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The last words of Adam. That they, they, he, he speaks the last words of Adam. So that he can now say the, the, the first words of God. Into your hands, Father, I commend my spirit. It's the last act of kenosis. It's the last act of total self-abandonment. And in doing that, he repairs that which Adam did. That, would, that happened because of Adam. God takes the initiative of a universal redeeming love. And by giving up his son for our sins, God reveals that his plan for us was a benevolent love, a total love. Apart from any merit of ours, we can't, there's no, we don't merit his love. This is some, please, we have to tell people constantly this. Because, you know, we live in a world where probably we grew up thinking that our worth, so maybe you had really great parents that didn't do this, or, but it's not even parents. It's the, it's the teachers, it's the administrators, it's the, the lifeguard at the pool that tells you to stop running, it's whatever it might be, it's and that generally our society says you have to earn respect, you have to earn love, you have to earn self-worth, all these different things, that you have to somehow do the right thing to be loved. And how it's something I encounter it constantly, I encounter it constantly. Is the, the amount of self-hate that people have for themselves because they didn't do it just right. That's not a God love. That's a lie. That's, a, that's the devil lying through the circumstances of our life. The devil wants us to believe that we have to get it right in order to be loved. I have to have the right job and the right security for my future, and my kids have to be just right, and the schools have to be just right, and all the just rights, it's a lie. And so Jesus comes to show us, what's the symbol of our faith? It's not a diploma. The symbol of our faith is a cross. The symbol of our faith is a symbol of failure, because he's taken it on and conquered it. Christ died for all of us, Without exception. There is no one he didn't die. He died for Hitler. He died for Osama bin Laden. He died for Stalin and Mao. He died for all of them. He died for you and for me, for everybody. He died for the unborn. He died for the incredibly old. He died for everybody. And God's love excludes no one. But like love, he can't force us to love him. Because then that's not love. So he makes an invitation so when people talk about, you know, it's like, well, I feel excluded or I feel judged. No, most of the time it's we're judging ourselves. But the exclusion from God's love only takes place when I choose not to accept it. Now, how do I accept it? By living 
Christ, a Christ-like life. So I have to admit that I sin. Like, I have no need for mercy if I don't admit that I need it. How do I admit that I need it? I have to admit that I sin. So when we talk about mercy is not saying you're good enough and you, you know, you're fine the way you are. No, it's Jesus tells the woman that caught in adultery, your sins are forgiven, now go and sin no more. He doesn't just say, pretty lady. You know, he doesn't, you know, he, he's always challenging us. When he, Peter, who denies Jesus, has to be asked three times, Peter, do you love me? It's a renewal of the love that was rejected. Same with us, that we have to, that the acceptance of Christ's love is the renewal of our self-sacrificing love. How do I receive his redemption? Through kenosis. If he emptied himself, I have to do the same thing in order to be filled with him. Because otherwise I'm just filled with myself. So Christ offered himself to the Father for our sins. His whole life from the first moment of the, from the, first moment of the Annunciation, his conception, the incarnation, the, his whole life is merely... An embracing of the Father's plan of love. Which means that he has to empty himself for the will of the Father. For his whole life was inspired by his desire to do the Father's will. And that's why he's called the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. You know, well, I'm not going to go into that. There's not enough time. Um, if you think about the whole journey towards towards uh, Calvary. It's all an emptying. Everything is being surrendered. He, he, he embraces the Father's plan throughout his preaching and teaching. At the Last Supper, he anticipates this free offering. And so in the Mass, he says, this is my body. This is my blood. It's everything. It's all of him. This, these are words of sacrifice. These are the words of the sacrifice of the Paschal Lamb. The body, the blood that they bled out. It's a total sacrifice. The body and the blood, it's a sign of the covenantal sacrifice that's made throughout all of Scripture. He's saying that I'm the lamb. I'm the sacrifice. And they all know, the Jews that hear this know, I have to participate in the sacrifice. The the slaughter of the lamb really is a sign of my self-giving, of my blood. But because we weren't capable of doing it ourselves, that's why martyrdom is considered, the, it's, the, it's the immediate ticket into intimacy with God because it's a taking on of the sacrifice, literally, that Jesus made. In the agony of Gethsemane, he accepts the cup, the chalice from the Father's hands. He says, If it be your will, Father, let this chalice pass from my lips, but not my will, but yours be done. He expresses this horror. He takes on the horror of death in this, as a man and as God, his human nature and his divine nature. Christ's death is, it's it's a definitive sacrifice too, because when God does something, he doesn't just kind of do it. It's definitive. It is complete. It is total. It cannot be any more perfect. So when we say Mass, when we go to Mass, it's not another sacrifice. It is a representation. It is 
us here and Jesus here. And in that moment where the priest says, bless and approve this offering at the epiclesis, time is folded and we are taken from here and placed at that one definitive sacrifice on the cross so that when we receive communion, we are receiving the actual sacrifice of Calvary. We're receiving the passion, death, and resurrection because we're receiving the one who received, the, the one who experienced the passion, the one who died, and the one who rose. We're, the resurrection is is. Not just figuratively, it is literally piercing my, my existence. My whole being now is resurrected because I'm receiving the one, the resurrected one. It's like, we should all be like fainting when we receive communion. Um, Christ's death is, is it's, it, we said it was the redemptive sacrifice that takes away sins, but it's also... A new covenant. What were the covenants of the Old Testament? That God will, God, I will, I will, I will have a relationship with you. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars if you do my will. Well, now God is not only doing the will as a man, but he is also making the definitive promise to man that he will never leave him. Jesus Christ is the answer to the question, are we alone? Because now God has become one of us and has taken us on. We're not alone. He substitutes obedience for disobedience. A recapitulation of, 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 sin, of the sin of Adam, the disobedience of Adam, is now taken on by the obedience of the incarnate word. And Jesus consummates the relationship between God and man on the cross. You think of that. What is marriage? Marriage is a total gift of self to the other. The body, every, the soul, the will, everything. I promise to be true to you in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health. I will love you and honor you all the days of my life. Well, Jesus is entering into a nuptial relationship with his bride, the church. He refers to the church as his bride. So upon the cross, what does the bridegroom do? He pours himself out. The cross is the wedding vow of the marriage between God and man, between the God and, and his church. And so it, he loves to the end. That's why on, in the Latin, it's beautiful, if you ever read the, the, the Latin of when he says, he doesn't say, it is finished upon the cross. His last words are not, it is finished. His last words are, consumatum est. It is consummated, and he dies. Is that it is the he pours himself completely out, and when when he is lanced in the in, in his heart, and the blood and water pour forth, it's the it is the the seminal gift of God to his bride. Very seems very sexual imagery, but it, but it is it's it's it is it's a total it is the marriage bed. Everything is given. That's why the priest kisses the altar at the Mass. It's the, it's the, here is the place of consummation, the altar, the cross. Here it is. That this is the gift. The, it's all gift. Sacrifice, the sacrifice of the cross, then, is the source of our salvation because it is the source of the gift. And our participation in Christ's sacrifice is what brings us our redemption. So what happens? Jesus dies. And he's buried. He experiences the fullness of death. 
the separation of his body and soul. He takes on the condition of death, not just in death, but even after death, he takes on what our condition is of the separation of body and soul, that which never should have been. Adam and Eve never were meant to die and body and soul be separated. That's why death scares us, because it's a rupturing of something that never should be ruptured. Jesus now conquers that. Even though the effects of sin, the separation of body and soul are there, that we, we can have that true knowledge and knowing that, they will, that we will come together again, that that body and soul will be reunited. Can we see my perfect body? And, and in that unity, we'll have the resurrection. So Christ in the tomb is Christ in his body. Um, so what does it mean when he, and I'm not going to go too deeply into it, but what did he mean when he, Christ, Jesus descended into hell and on the third day he rose again. We hear that in the creed. Is that it's, Ephesians speaks about it very clearly in a more clear way. Descended to the, it means he descended to the lower parts of the earth. Okay. He, he, he went into the realm of the dead, the realm that was prior to the resurrection. Remember that the gates of heaven, if you will, the, 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 the experience of the intimacy with God, the divine intimacy with God in heaven was closed to man. Because of sin. And so Jesus experiences death. And his soul is joined to the others in the realm of the dead. As a, as a dying person would before the redemption. But he descended there as the savior. And he proclaimed the good news to the spirits in prison there. <coughs> so scripture calls this abode of death hell. Because those who are deprived of the vision of God, it's hellish to be deprived of the vision of God. Whether you were righteous or evil, they were awaiting a redeemer. And the holy souls who awaited a savior are delivered by Jesus. They are drawn now into the, the intimacy that is possible, into the beatific vision, the vision of God. Um, because that's what they merited. That's what he gives them as free gift. He doesn't abolish hell. He doesn't deliver the damned. The damned are damned because they chose through their life not to have an intimacy with God. They didn't strive for it. But to free, he went to free the just who had gone before him. So I imagine one of the first people he encountered there is his dad, his foster father, right? How great was that homecoming? Joseph. Hey, Joseph. Right? Wow, it's the risen one. You know, how about Adam and Eve? Right? It's like, you screwed up. But I made it better than it was before. Right. So, so the gospel is preached to the dead. And he descends to bring the gospel message of salvation to complete. To, and, show, and now he can show them the complete fulfillment of it. And the last phase of the messianic mission is to bring that redemptive work to all men there. Um, so finally there we have the resurrection. And then I'll close. On the third day he rose from the dead. This is a central mystery of our faith. The crowning truth of our faith. This whole project, this whole thing is useless without the resurrection. So if Jesus was just a good teacher, he was a madman. Like C.S. Lewis would say. He was either crazy, evil, or who he says he was. Right? No one claims to do what he did uh, if, he, if he wasn't him. Unless he was really evil or a nut. I mean, there's plenty of people who claim to be the Messiah. <laughs> I to meet some of them sometimes. But 
But the crowning and central truth of our faith, and it is believed and lived as the central truth of our faith, is the resurrection. That's why Easter is a way bigger holiday than Christmas. Okay? That's always amazed me. You can't make money on Easter. A couple of eggs, I mean, you know, it's whatever, you know, the candies. And, but the world hasn't really, like, wrapped itself around the resurrection thing yet. What? Christmas is nice, you know, peace, joy, goodwill to men. But it's like, peace, joy, but, they, but, but, but what does it mean when you see peace and joy? What, what do you, where's, what's the source of the peace? What's the cause of our joy? What's the, it's this kind of amorphous, ambiguous, secular philosophy. I guess you can sell things on that, right? Because the whole idea of gifts, right? Gifts, and, you know, let's bring gifts. We'll make money. But Easter, Easter, it's like, how can I make money on the resurrection? Now, you know, in order to talk about the resurrection, I've got to talk about the cross. And that's why I can't sell, I can sell, they try to sell the chocolate crosses. It's just weird. Uh, it's like, I'm not going to eat that. Uh, that's just horrible. It's like eating pizza during the Passion of the Christ. I can't do that. Uh, you know, so, so it's just, it's just like, it's just disrespectful. It's just, it's like eating a hot fudge sundae in the ER or something. It just, it's not right. But, but, it, so they haven't figured out how to, how to, how to take it, how to usurp that one. Because it is the central truth of our faith that is handed on by tradition, by the New Testament. It is preached as an essential Paschal mystery in unity with the cross. It was a historical event. We know it happened. Non, we have pagan and Jewish the, uh, historians who wrote about it as well. That there were followers of Jesus that claimed, they would say, they went to the tomb and it was empty and they claimed that this man rose from the dead. Okay, clearly they're not going to say, unless they were Christians themselves, they wouldn't say that that was true. But we know that this was a claim. Now if you think about it, the empty tomb, though it's not direct proof of the resurrection, it becomes an essential sign. It's the first sign in recognizing the resurrection that John saw and believed he knew from that moment Mary Magdalene saw in all of their I mean they were in a lot of pain people who have experienced their best friend dying do not make up stories about them because they could they emotionally couldn't handle it so the appearances of the risen one Mary Magdalene the holy women the first messengers to the apostles and Mary Magdalene was the first evangelist after the post-resurrection evangelist. The apostles next to Peter, then Peter, then the twelve, they all got together and he would strengthen his brothers. You think about it, the church is built on the apostles and this witness. If this witness was not true, we all know, we live in America, we've heard the lies of politicians, plenty, and everyone has, not just Americans, and every time, every system, every whatever, every philosophy, every ideology, every... Everything, everyone has claims. Why is it this one's never collapsed? That the historical fact is that it was, and it wasn't initially believed. Even the apostles refused to believe this until he appeared to them, until he saw them. That faith is born from a direct experience with the risen reality of Jesus Christ. And that the condition of his risen humanity was very clear. He was seen, he was heard, he was touched by many people. His risen body was real, it was authentic, it wasn't just a spirit. He ate before them. It was the same body that was tortured and crucified. They saw the nail marks. That yet, 
It had now new supernatural properties, a new glorified body. Jesus had now the preternatural gifts that Adam and Eve would have. He would have them in their perfection. He wasn't limited by time or space. He no longer was confined to earth, but belonged to the Father's divine realm. And it wasn't, remember, the resurrection of Jesus wasn't a return to his earthly life. He was different. It wasn't like Lazarus, who was, we, Lazarus was risen from the dead, and Lazarus comes out, and Lazarus is just like he was before he died. Now, Jesus is glorified. He is completed. He's perfect. He is passing from the state of death to another life, to another reality, beyond time and space. And his body is filled with the Holy Spirit. He shares the glorified state. And so that's why he would glow. He, would, he had a radiance about him. It's a transcendent event as well. So, the, whole, the, the Trinity is involved in this, in its completion. Okay, the divine persons act together and manifest themselves through the resurrection. The Father raises the Son, perfectly introducing his humanity into the Trinity. Okay, think about that. There is a human body, a human nature, intimately woven into the very existence of God. Think of that. That we are in unity with God simply because we share his nature, even here and now. Even the, 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 the worst sinner in the world, the biggest rejecter of God. That he shares that reality. She shares that reality. Jesus conclusively revealed as the Son of God in his power in this resurrection. And God's power is manifested through the working of the Holy Spirit that gave life to Jesus' dead humanity. So, what is the significance of all of this? It's the fulfillment of every promise of the Old Testament. The resurrection confirms all of Christ's teachings, all of his works. He's a definitive proof of truth of his divinity of his divine sonship, of the authority from which he spoke. He fulfills the incarnation. The whole reason that God becomes man is so that man can become like God. And through death, he frees us from sin, and he opens up a new way of life, a justification, the reinstating us to grace and a victory over death, and he adopts us. We are now adopted sons and daughters of the Father. That's the mystery of Jesus Christ. That's awesome.